The legacy of Colin Powell is complicated. He was the first Black Secretary of State. He was a decorated military leader. But the world also knew him for saying something that didn't turn out to be true. I cannot tell you everything that we know, but what I can share with you when combined with what all of us have learned over the years is deeply troubling. In 2003, Powell gave a speech at the UN trying to build support for a war in Iraq because Iraq, he said, had weapons of mass destruction. Years later, Colin Powell said again and again that he regretted this speech. Here he is in 2010 on CNN. I turned the dial, there's no question about it. And that's what the president wanted me to do and what I was supposed to do. You regret it. I regret it now because the information was wrong. Of course I do. Powell's public regret for his role in the Iraq war is an inescapable part of his legacy. This is reporter Karen DeYoung, who wrote Powell's biography. And he said often that this was going to be probably in the first paragraph of his obituary, that he sold this policy to the American public and to Congress, but he sold it. Powell sold it, and it was not true. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, October 18th. Today, the life and legacy of Colin Powell. Powell died on Monday at the age of 84. According to his family, he died of complications from COVID-19. They pointed out that Powell was fully vaccinated, but severely immunocompromised. He'd also been treated in recent years for a rare form of blood cancer. For Karen DeYoung, she remembers what he was like when he was at the peak of public life. I had started traveling with him when he was Secretary of State, and I was covering foreign policy. Karen is also a national security correspondent for The Post. And he was by far the most accessible. The way the airplane is configured that the secretaries travel in, there's a compartment in the front of the plane where the secretary stays. And and I think he didn't like to be in there. So he would get up and come back and come to the back of the plane. And he loved to tell jokes. He would sing Jamaican songs. He was a very witty guy. He was funny. He believed passionately in the free press, as well as other American institutions. So I, I I never experienced that with anyone else. And at the same time, I, I've subsequently interviewed him many times, and he was direct. The fact that Powell was so direct and that people thought of him as such a straight shooter, that was one of the reasons why he ended up becoming a mouthpiece for the Bush administration at the start of the Iraq War. That was also one of the reasons why he broke so many barriers as he rose through the government. Colin Powell was probably the most prominent Black official to serve in the U.S. government. I think he would not like that description uh, of being the most prominent Black official. He would like to be known as someone who rose to the highest levels of his chosen profession in the U.S. Army, four-star general, who served as a national security advisor to a president, as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and as secretary of state. So take me back a little bit to the start of his career and how he eventually rose to such powerful positions. He was the son of Jamaican immigrants. His parents came separately to the United States during the 1920s. 
and met in New York, which was where a lot of West Indian immigrants ended up in the United States. 100 years ago, a young immigrant left a dirt farm in Jamaica and set out for America. Three years later, a ship pulled into New York Harbor and a young Jamaican woman gazed up at the Statue of Liberty for the first time. They became my parents. His family was not wealthy. They lived in the Bronx for most of his upbringing in a community that was really a community of immigrants. And that's how he always described himself, as a child of immigrants. He was not a stellar student, he would have been the first to admit. He ended up going to college at uh, City College in New York. During his first year there, he ran into the ROTC and was fascinated by it. He was somebody who liked ceremony, liked order, liked institutions. His family was uh, in the um, Anglican church. He was an, uh, an altar boy, and he loved it. He loved getting dressed up. He loved going down the aisle of the church on Sunday morning with the incense, and he saw these uh, guys marching in order, great uniforms, and said, that's for me. And he joined and I think never looked back. So tell me about how his time in the military shaped his leadership style and his political beliefs. The military gave him a home. It gave him a structure. It gave him clear rules and ways to improve himself. He moved up very quickly. Part of that was due to the fact that he was in the right place at the right time and also had the skills that were necessary to be in that place at the right time. He went to Vietnam in 1962 um, at a time when we didn't acknowledge that we had U.S. troops in Vietnam. When the Reagan administration came into office, he was uh, chosen to be Caspar Weinberger, who was the defense secretary, chosen to be his chief military aide. And that put him really for the first time in a real position of power. One of the things that Colin Powell has been known for is this thing called the Powell Doctrine, which has really shaped the way that we think about how America conducts war. Can you talk a little bit about the Powell Doctrine and where that came from and why that became important? It was basically that you don't go into a conflict without an overwhelming number of troops and without political and public support in the United States and with an exit strategy. And where that first came into to heavy use was certainly in the first Gulf War when Powell was chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And so that came into play in the Gulf War, but then became an even bigger part of the aftermath of September 11th, when Powell was secretary of state and essentially became part of the apparatus of getting America and the world on board with waging war. Can you talk a little bit about how he navigated that role? Well, I think in Afghanistan, he was definitely all for it, sending the troops there. He was Secretary of State at the time, so his job was to go around to the Allies, uh, to go to Pakistan, to go to everybody that had a role to play in this and make sure that all the diplomacy was lined up behind what the United States wanted to do in Afghanistan. And that was not hard to do because there was overwhelming international support. That was not the case with Iraq. It became clear in sort of the middle of 2002 
that uh, President Bush, Vice President Cheney, Defense Secretary Rumsfeld were intending to invade uh, Iraq. Powell didn't think it was a great idea and tried to talk Bush into letting him build some diplomatic backing for it beforehand. As it turned out, he couldn't get that diplomatic backing. I think Powell felt conflicted. He thought that it wasn't being managed right, that there weren't enough troops, uh, that the Powell Doctrine was not going to be implemented. So how was public support going to be built for it? The Bush administration knew very well that Powell was by far the most popular member of the administration in terms of of public popularity. And so in January of that year, they called him in and said, we want you to go to the United Nations and give a speech and explain all the evidence we have that Saddam Hussein is building chemical and even nuclear weapons. I call now on the distinguished Secretary of State of the United States of America, His Excellency, Mr. Colin Powell. Thank you, Mr. President. Mr. President, Mr. Secretary General, distinguished colleagues, I would like to begin by expressing my thanks for the special effort that each of you made to be here today. I think a lot of people remember that speech as a big part, ultimately, of of how Powell's legacy is thought of. Can you talk a little bit about what he said in that speech and how we look back on it? He didn't want to do it. He agreed to do it, but said that he would say what he wanted to say, not necessarily what they wanted him to say. And they provided him with a script, which he thought was way over the top. And he and his team went to the CIA and sat there and said, we want to look at this evidence. We want to listen to what you've gotten from from spies that you have there, from people who have worked in these programs. We want to look at all the evidence. And so they did. And he cut back the sort of script that they had provided him with, felt like he'd done a pretty good job, felt like they had convinced him, went in, gave the speech. When Iraq finally admitted having these weapons in 1995, the quantities were vast, less than a teaspoon of dry anthrax, a little bit about this amount. This is just very memorably held up a little vial of what was, I think, probably baking soda and said, this is anthrax. This is just about the amount of a teaspoon, less than a teaspoon full of dry anthrax in an envelope shut down the United States Senate in the fall of 2001. This forced several hundred people to undergo emergency medical treatment and killed two postal workers just from an amount just about this quantity that was inside of an envelope. Showed the pictures, played some some tapes of uh, intercepts between Iraqi military people and said, I'm convinced and you ought to be convinced too. And in fact, it worked. It certainly worked with American public opinion. American newspapers, this one included, came out and said, you know, he, we're convinced. Um, and we went to war and we all know what happened. The evidence... During that year, 2003, pretty quickly collapsed. That there were no weapons of mass destruction and that the evidence that Powell had held up was not really that hard and fast evidence that had convinced people. Yeah, I think that the Iraqis that had given evidence didn't know what they say, said they knew. The mobile chemical weapons vans, the pictures that were shown, 
were not that at all. And eventually, George Tenet, who was the CIA director, stood up and said, well, I think some of this evidence wasn't very good. And Powell was furious. And he gave an interview just a few years later to ABC News and basically said that he regretted doing that or that he looked back on that moment as a real point of pain. I wonder how you think that that speech and Powell's role in essentially making the war in Iraq possible, how that affects his legacy. I think it will always be brought up, but I think his legacy is bigger than that. He went on to do a lot of things. He started a public policy institute at CCNY, his alma mater, which is still going strong. He uh, published a number of books about leadership. You know, his popularity really didn't wane all that much. I mean, he's still, I believe, remembered very fondly and with great admiration by the American public. After the break... Powell's life after public office, and where his legacy fits now within the modern Republican Party. We'll be right back. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it. And why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. Monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Throughout the early 2000s, Powell developed a reputation as one of the most powerful Republicans in the party. But then, after he resigned as Secretary of State in 2005, his loyalties to the Republican Party started to change. He came out in support of Barack Obama's candidacy for president. He backed Hillary Clinton in 2016 and called Donald Trump a disgrace. And last year, he supported Joe Biden. We asked Karen about how she sees Powell's brand of conservative politics at a time when that is pretty out of step with the Republican Party of today. You know, he didn't start out as a Republican. He first voted for John F. Kennedy. And in fact, he didn't join the Republican Party until he uh, started thinking about whether or not he wanted to run for president in the mid-1990s. This would have been running against President Clinton. The Democrats were not going to nominate him to replace Clinton for a second term. And so really his only avenue toward that was through the Republican Party. And so he joined the Republican Party and obviously he he voted for uh, Republican presidents up until the time when Barack Obama uh, ran and he came out and said, I'm going to vote for Barack Obama. I think Powell would describe himself as an Eisenhower Republican, a Rockefeller Republican, that kind of mainline internationalist vein in the Republican Party, which certainly predominated at least until the beginning of the 2000s 
where the tide really began to turn pretty definitively. He came out quite early against President Trump, said he was going to vote for Hillary Clinton in 2016. And in fact, when Clinton was under a lot of criticism for sending what were said to be classified emails over her own private email system, he went through all the emails and came out publicly and said, look, I've been Secretary of State. There was nothing classified here. Today, we are a country divided. And we have a president doing everything in his power to make it that way and keep us that way. What a difference it will make to have a president who unites us, who restores our strength and our soul. I still believe that in our hearts, we are the same America that brought my parents to our shores, an America that inspires freedom around the world. That's the America Joe Biden will lead as our next president. And he spoke out frequently against Donald Trump, both before the election and when Trump was president. You know, it's really interesting thinking about the type of Republican that Colin Powell was that we don't see being very successful in politics anymore, but also because of the role that he played in the war in Iraq and the aftermath of that. Do you feel like in some ways Colin Powell allowed Donald Trump to happen? I don't think so. I think those were forces in the Republican Party and in the country at large, started before Colin Powell, before Iraq, that were moving things in a certain direction for a lot of reasons. And I think, if anything, the Colin Powells of the world and Colin Powell helped delay it a bit. This was a man who, when he was thinking of running for president in 1995, polled higher than any other American in terms of being admired around the world, not only in this country. But he pulled back. He didn't see himself as a pathbreaker in that sense, in terms of being president. He was a man of his time, uh, a very particular time in American history. And I think that he, like a lot of other Republicans of that ilk, got overwhelmed by forces that came from a different direction. Karen DeYoung is a senior national security correspondent for The Post. She's also the author of an illuminating biography of the former Secretary of State. It's called Soldier, the Life of Colin Powell. Today's show was mixed by Sean Carter. Ariel Plotnick produced this story with production assistance from Alexis Tiao. The kind of reporting that we do is only possible because of our subscribers. If that's you, thank you so much. And if not, I hope you'll consider a subscription to The Washington Post. Right now, you can try The Post for just a dollar a week, which gets you unlimited access to everything we publish. Learn more at WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.